Hello, hello. Thanks for tuning in to the first episode of the Mescaline Garden podcast. I felt like cactus are getting a bit glossed over in the current psychedelic hype, so I'm trying to give these often prickly plants a bit more emphasis. My vision for this podcast is to interview experts that do different types of work with cactus. Botanists, horticulturalists, chemists, facilitators, gardeners. Without being able to talk directly to cactus, looking at the many perspectives on cactus seems like the best way to understand them. This first episode is an interview with Dr. Anya Ermakova, an expert in neuroscience, psychiatry and conservation, who has done a lot of important fieldwork mapping peyote populations in Texas, as well as some very interesting clinical work around psychedelics. In this episode, Anya and I talk about cactus alkaloids, conservation and harm reduction for plants as well as people. We also mispronounce a bunch of different words. What I thought was pronounced as Lophophora frickii, Anya pronounces as fritchy, and neither of us knows how to say the word used to describe nodules on peyote, which is spelt T-U-B-E-R-C-L-E. You can listen to my pronunciation attempts later. Enjoy. Thanks for joining me. I'm really excited to talk to you about cactus. How are you going? Uh, yeah, it's uh, going good. Thank you very much for inviting me. Well, I'm looking forward to our conversation. I guess, like, to start at the beginning, what was your pathway to being interested in cactus? I guess my my beginning was way, way back when I was still living in Russia and I was 16 years old. and. By complete accident, I came across a book by Carlos Castaneda, and like now in hindsight, I know, okay, it's like this really weird, slightly cultish guy who made up this whole story, but yeah, for a 16-year-old me who had like no encounters at all with anything to do with ethnobotany or anthropology or anything really, I was in high school preparing for to go to university to study physics. So it really blew my mind, that book. And after that, I started to look more and more and read, uh, uh, found uh, information on the internet, uh, found Aerovid, found uh, Tikal and Fikal, and that really started off my interest in psychedelics. But yeah, it was specifically descriptions from Carlos Castaneda of mescaline containing peyote in Mexico that started it all. Fantastic. And so so you're you're in Russia, you're 16 and you're reading this book. Uh, like, is there what's I don't know much about cactus culture in Russia. Like, how was it was cactus your your kind of the first thing you're interested in? Because I know he talks about some other stuff as well. Yeah, I, I don't know why, because he also talks about mushrooms. I think he also talks about the tours or maybe Rugmansias. I don't quite remember, but one of the delirians. But yeah, I don't know why specifically it was Piotta that captured my imagination, but it did. And uh, I just remember there and then this firm resolve that I have to try that for myself. Like there was no hesitation. There was no like second thoughts. There wasn't even like much research that I have done about it, but I just had this conviction that I have to try that for myself. So yeah, and after, after that, I just continued research and for several years until I actually moved to study in the UK, I haven't tried anything more psychoactive than cannabis because yeah, living in Russia, I didn't know have the connections. I didn't know anybody who would take any mind altering substances. And I was living in a provincial city without much knowledge of the culture of counterculture or rave scene. Like there was not on my radar at all. So only once I moved to UK, I came much more in contact with that. But yeah, I still had this result that I have to try those things. 
It's 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 a little bit of a sidestep, but it's something that I I've wondered because you know I, I I'm interested in in peyote as well, and so I try to get into the literature and see who's spoken about it or whatever. And I feel like you stand out as a Russian. Uh, like there's not so many. There's not so many. There's a lot of Germans. Uh, not not so not so many Russians. And and as well, I think even fewer that are actually doing field field work. Like uh, even when when I say talk about the Germans, a lot of them are just kind of, you know, working in, in labs and stuff. But w what's it like being a, a Russian doing field work with peyote? Is it, does it, do you, does it make you an outsider? Does it maybe give you an edge? Because I, I know there's tensions between like first nations people and people in the United States. Well, that's, that's an odd question because yeah, I think I, I've lived in the UK for so long now for mm. like, 16 years or almost more that uh, I almost like consider myself more <laughs> citizen of the world. I can't say I'm British, sure. but yeah, I think I'm much more at home with like the international community here of like, you know, scientists and then, then being Russian or British or any particular nation. But I think that's more the artifact of like where, where I live and the society I socialize in like always like universities international communities people from all over the world uh so yeah and uh, so yeah i don't consider myself russian unless i go abroad and that was quite an interesting experience i had in texas where people ask me oh where you're from and i say oh, i'm from russia uh and uh, they're all very excited to meet a russian person <laughs> much more so than like to say meet a british person or somebody from i don't know california and i think the attitude is also like slightly you're a rarity slightly different yeah and and so yeah i guess that that sounds like it's a good thing right uh it, it kind of builds a bit of rapport yeah yeah i yeah. think so and yeah i think up until uh start of the war last year like being russian was not really an issue or, or a problem like now like since last year it's a bit more controversial and difficult and you always feel like you have to explain that okay you're against the war and you know individuals have very little power <laughs> over yeah, totally. government in russia so yeah but before that was never a problem yeah, yeah, that's tough. It's a, especially you know someone that lives in the UK and yeah, 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 yeah. Can you can you tell me uh, a bit more about like the field work itself? Can you kind of like take me there? I've never I've never been, but like I'd love to I'd love to imagine what your experience is going out there and 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 doing this. Just yeah, for for a bit of context uh, i did my masters in conservation biology at imperial college london and that was uh, 2018 2019 and for my master's dissertation research project i did field work in texas uh, united states and i looked at ecology uh, specifically at population densities of peyote cactus uh, comparing south texas and west texas in the South Texas is where most of the commercial harvesting happens uh, in the United States and West Texas is you know, this little studded uh, part uh, in the desert, in the Chihuahuan desert where peyote grows, but it's not as abundant. So there's never been any commercial operations for extracting it from there. Mm -hmm. Yeah, cool. And, and how's your, um, your eye for identifying different peyotes because uh, i'm i'm into it i stare at a lot of peyotes both in pictures and in person but gosh it i find it a lot harder to pick up than than san pedro's i, I find that it's it's a very hard to, to to see some of these more minor differences of peyote by eye well first of all there is not uh, no scientific consensus on how many peyotes peyote species are there specifically lafocora species uh, there are uh, generally thought that there are at least two, from two to five uh, species, <laughs> and then some people subdivided into even four species. Some people say no, 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 it's just the two. But yeah, let's let's assume there are at least 
like four species. And uh, uh, one can easily distinguish, well, certainly Lafophora williamsi peyote because it contains mescaline and the other several species uh, generally don't, or if they do, they contain very small quantities of it. And another fairly easy way to distinguish, say, Lafophora williamsi peyote and Lafophora diffusa, which is often called false peyote, is uh, the color of the flowers. So diffusa has white flowers and uh, peyote has kind of pink flowers. Yeah, I guess when I'm thinking about it, I'm uh, more thinking at the, the horticultural level or more, more kind of cultivars and varieties. The, those mm -hmm. are the, the minute differences that I'm like, I'd love to get my head around, but oh my gosh, people are talking about the specific like lumpiness of it. I don't know. Is it tubercle, turbicle? You know, you know the word I mean. Do you know how to say that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I don't know how to say yeah, it. Yeah, thank you. Perfect, perfect. Well, I mean. Butchering the English of it. Yeah, yeah. Oh, well, you've got a good excuse. I don't. But I, I, I can't say that. But yeah, I think, yeah, with it, with San Pedro, I find a lot of the traits are kind of a bit more obvious. I don't I don't really have a good reason for it. But the the parody cultivars, yeah, really, really does my my head in trying to, trying to tell yeah, them apart by eye. But it's like quite amazing to see, like for example, in the cactus nurseries in Asia, like when you see pictures from Thailand, for example, from Japan, they they do absolutely incredible things with peyote cultivars. You get those like really really fluffy cultivars which have a lot of hair and they look beautiful. And you have the variegated ones with different patches of color. You have the suspitosas like with multiple heads. Uh, you have various monstrous varieties of it. So yeah, like in certain countries, peyote is very popular uh, as a ornamental cactus. And yeah, they do all sorts of things and breed always new varieties of it. What are your thoughts on the ethics of, like, I guess it's it's kind of a, a, about breeding in general, but the thing that makes me make the question of people that are breeding like, a monstrosa kind of cactus it's like i just thinking of the parallel human experience i'm like is it more difficult for you to survive is like is is there are there some consequences uh to to this kind of attitude or like but I, at the same time i do selectively breed for monstrous forms because i think it's fantastic and i love that it's kind of this difference is celebrated in cactus, but this, the flip side of that is me also being like, am I, am I being terrible? I think like as thinking as a biologist, I think it's fine to breed all sorts of cultivars as long as they are in the, uh, in cultivation. Uh, the problem is when, you know, some of those cultivars escape into the wild in the natural habitat and start to crossbreed with the wild populations and, I don't know what, what this can uh, bring. It could potentially reduce the fitness of the wild populations and certainly alter their genetics if they start to crossbreed with those cultivars. So like as a biologist, that's, that's the main danger of it. But yeah, I don't see the danger of it in terms of breeding it in your own greenhouse or in your own garden. Well, it's nice to be validated. Uh, yeah, you, another you... another angle on that that you could take potentially is uh, say it could be that some people for whom peyote is a sacrament and a sacred plant they would think that this is disrespectful to do this to mm. peyote. But again, it's a matter of your cultures and and spiritual beliefs. Yeah, I um, there's uh, there are so many tangents I want to go down. Tangent the first. Do you know of any uh, cactus that have been impacted in the wild by people producing hybrids and them getting into the, the wild populations? I haven't heard of that in the context of uh, masculine-containing cacti. Hmm, good, good. Well, I'm glad yeah. to hear that. Uh, but my other tangent was thinking along these lines of how, you know, to some people um breeding peyote could potentially be disrespectful even i've heard just growing them or or uh even with the intent of conservation like conservation i've heard of being seen as being disrespectful too so there's obviously a lot of views on it but 
I, I feel like, and, and, and maybe it's just insane, but we'd so desperately, I, I desperately want to know what the plant's opinions are. Like not, I don't want it to be filtered through a person. I want a direct communication with a plant where it can answer these questions because otherwise, it, you know, when we, when we say, how do we look after this plant or what do we do? It just seems to get caught up in human, like I, I, it'll get attached to my, me being like, oh, I'm drug reform's important to me. So what decisions I make about peyote probably going to come through that angle, you know? How do we, is it, is that, is that something do you think we'll ever actually be able to achieve? I like plant, human to plant communication. Yeah, direct, direct. Direct. I don't, I don't know. Like, uh, again, from many people who work with plant medicines, this is one of the most hmm. common feature of, of subjective experiences for sure. But how true are those subjective experiences? I don't know. They feel real and so many people report them. Like I myself had experienced plant communication, but again, like thinking from as a scientist, I cannot quite disentangle. Is it me thinking that I have plant communication and projecting something of my unconscious or is it actually plant communication? I don't know. Like on the one hand, you have those subjective experiences reported by so many people who worked with the uh, psychedelic plants. And on the other hand, to have like my uh, training as a scientist that is like, hmm, you have to test it. How would you test if it's like genuine communication with the plant? Oh, well, I, I do desperately want it to be real, but I also know of stories of people saying that the endangered acacia told them to wild harvest it. And I'm like, well, that really goes against my understanding of logic but also who knows could, could you tell me about your plant communication experience or experiences I, even experiences yeah i guess i can tell you like i had a very very one one of the very interesting uh experiences on uh, uh one of the cactus where i became the cactus myself and i would see them or perceive the world as a cactus and that was like really really amazing experience of like what it's like to be a plant and, and perceive the world as a plant and uh, in in this state of like feeling as if i'm i am a cactus i had this amazing amazing connection with uh, with the, all the natural world around me and just like the whole world of of nature and i had this very distinct feeling of being able to communicate with other cacti not not just masculine containing like the whole whole family of, of cacti mm -hmm. and i could like switch my perspective into like every cactus in the whole world and like feel all the connections and networks that they are they are connected to through the through the ground through the roots through connection with other plants nearby. And that was a really, really magical experience. I don't know, like I haven't received any specific message in like that I can describe in words, but it's just this, this feeling of connection of being part of, of the, that whole network of cacti around the world. I feel like I find that easier to believe as a genuine plant experience than as someone that's like plants telling you words, like what? No, plants smarter than that. They don't need words. And they're not caught up in all that silly human business. Yeah, I think yeah, it was more like the feeling of interconnectedness of the fact that you cannot separate plant and take it and look at it by itself. You have to look at it in the interconnection of all the of the whole ecosystem where it grows. And that was my main message. Like if you want to work with the plants in the wild work i mean like conserve them and make sure that they survive and it's, it's like a, a bit of a, a jump but we, we kind of hinted at it when you know you you were talking about your journey to uh working with cactus and this kind of um conflict between uh your scientist self and this other this other self um is there 
and maybe there's no conflict at all, but what's it like, I, I feel your like clinical background versus like hands-on with plants is like, it's so rare. And like, uh, psychedelics are booming. It's a big industry. And that is presented a risk to peyote, which is com both a, an opportunity and a threat. The opportunity is, you know, more people will understand and awareness will grow and conservation will be, will be pushed by that. But the threat is that the opposite, the opposite happens. And um, yeah, how does, how does this psychedelic boom in the context of your clinical work kind of relate to your feelings ab about your, your more kind of ecology, ecology work? Well, uh, first of all, I, I have to say that uh, compared to all the other psychedelics, uh, uh, mescaline is not uh, by far one of the least um, uh, developed uh, or like there is a lot, there are a lot less companies and uh, pharmaceutical companies or research in general that happens with mescaline and uh, compared to say psilocybin, LSD, DMT, 5-MeO-DMT, uh, and various new psychedelics that were developed with particular features that people want to develop them for, some including like not psychedelic, psychedelic-like compounds. And uh, uh, I guess what, what, where I was saying is like, uh, that's, that's one point. Second point is for most uh, clinical research, uh, uh, it's uh, common to use synthesized compounds. So I don't think that specifically would endanger peyote because no clinical development is going to start with, uh, with peyote extracts harvested from the wild. If it's pharmaceutical development, most likely it's going to be uh, synthesized mescaline. And there are some companies that develop mescaline uh, one is Journey Collab, and they want to develop mescaline for alcohol addiction. Another company that works with mescaline is MindMed, and they so far, I think, finished or finishing studies with healthy volunteers in Switzerland comparing the effects of mescaline to psilocybin and LSD. Uh, it's in the lab of uh, Matthias Liecht in Switzerland, this research is happening. They haven't published any results yet, but I'll be very curious to see what comes out of it in terms of comparison. Um, but yeah, generally speaking, there are a lot less companies that want to work with mescaline um, for various reasons. One of the reasons is very long duration of effects uh, compared to psilocybin or or DMT or 5-MeO-DMT. And second is that the body load of mescaline is higher. So a lot more people experience uh, nausea, vomiting, uh, upset stomach, diarrhea. So generally mescaline is not, not as well tolerated as uh, psilocybin or LSD would be. Uh, so for those reasons, mescaline is not as common. Uh, that said, I know that there are a couple of Canadian companies that want to develop cactus extracts, uh, but then again, in, uh, including some from Piota cacti. Um, again, I don't really know where they are at because a lot of companies are very secretive and then they release a press release which contains minimal information like, yeah, we are starting to do cactus extracts. Uh, like there is a company called, I think, Cactus Therapeutics and uh, X Phytotherapeutics uh, and few few others that that start that. Uh, but uh, my my thinking is they'll probably go into use greenhouse grown peyote or San Pedro, most likely even San Pedro for that. Yeah, I feel so, like peyote will be very inefficient. Uh, Sort of. Yeah, exactly, because it's such a slow growing uh, plant. Uh, there are ways to grow it faster through grafting, but yeah, again, I, I think it's not very efficient way. And they have uh, lower so, alkaloid content, the, the grafted ones, plus it's, you can graft a San Pedro too, right? Yeah, exactly. So yeah, I don't think like pharmaceutical 
companies are directly endangering the other. So, but there might be indirect effect in the sense that uh, it changes the public opinion and increases awareness of the substances. Mm -hmm. And then people who would want to try it outside of clinical settings uh, would go and harvest. And this is like one of the main concerns voiced by the Native American Church of North America when they are arguing against decriminalizing peyote is that they are afraid that with increased acceptance of psychedelics and increased acceptance of medicinal or healing value of them, more people would go and harvest it for themselves. And with peyote, there is a danger that it's, it's already severely over harvested. So they're afraid that this is going to compound the damage caused. So yeah, this, this is a valid concern. And uh, we can see like not so much in Texas because in Texas, peyote grows on private land and it's very hard to, for you know, a stranger who is not familiar there to go and harvest it because you'll have to climb the fences, trespass on people's land and Texas ranchers don't take kindly to trespassers and you can be easily shot by some people. Did you so, do that? That's wild. No, I didn't. I didn't do that. I didn't trespass on lands. But what I did during my fieldwork in Texas, I spoke with a lot of ranchers mm. uh, trying to get legal access to their land to do my research. And most ranchers would gladly talk to me or show me their land and show cacti growing on their land. But then they would say, no, I don't want to, you to do research on it in case somebody finds out that I have peyote on my land. That's mm -hmm. why I had such difficulty finding sites to do my research on, because a lot of ranchers say, like, I don't want it publicly known or even scientific, like, put in scientific paper that you've done peyote on my land. So, yeah, there is, uh, like, a lot of ranchers are very protective of their land and don't want anyone trespassing it. So, yeah, a lot of Peyote tourism happens actually in Mexico, not in Texas. What happens in Texas is legal harvesting and a lot of poaching, but by local people who, who know where to poach, when to poach, they know when the ranchers are away, for example, mm -hmm. and they trespass on their land when they're not there, but it's all through the local knowledge. And a lot of this poaching happens, it's sold for licensed peyote dealers and and then sold on for the Native American church. But in Mexico, there are uh, actual psychedelic tourists, various uh, people who go for retreats. Again, in Mexico, there's a lot more of a culture, I guess, where you can just, it's a lot easier to find peyote and there's a lot of more of black market and accessibility for it. And the, the populations, uh, so are the populations in Mexico actually larger or they're just more known because they're not on private land? In, for some reason, I had the opinion or the, the understanding that um, there was more prolific parity in, in Mexico. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There is a lot larger territories where peyote grows. So in Texas, peyote grows only in small areas in South Texas and West Texas. While in Mexico, there are several states where it grows and there is like the whole expanse of Chihuahuan Desert. Of course, peyote doesn't grow uniformly distributed across Chihuahuan Desert. It has a very clump distribution, so it likes particular soils, particular microhabitats. But still, like all, all in all, there is a lot more peyote in Mexico. And uh, most of the poaching and Peyote tourism happens in uh, San Luis Potosí, in the more in the south rather than north of Mexico, because generally north of Mexico is considered a more dangerous place and not particularly tourist friendly place, and there are like no roads and not so much infrastructure there. Mm. So there is still a lot of peyote in North Mexico, even though now there are reports that even then it's been harvested and, uh, and sold illegally to US. But in terms of like peyote tourism in Mexico itself, a lot of it is happening in San Luis Potosí. Yeah, right. 
And this is also the sacred area of Virikuta, which is where uh, Virarika people do their pilgrimages. So it's uh, very, uh, very dangerous practice because it affects not just Piyota itself ecologically, but cultural traditions associated with it. Have you been and to really, Virikuta? I haven't. I actually haven't been to Mexico at all. Oh, really? I've seen Mexico across Rio Grande River from Texas, but no, I haven't been to Mexico yet. Oh, right. Or do you think you'll make it eventually? Is it on the list? Absolutely, yes. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I would love to, to go to Mexico, talk to Piyota researchers there. Uh, there is some very, very interesting research happening with the populations uh, in the uh, in Mexico, and I would love to do field work as well if I could. Mm, cool, like this yeah. is very, very high on my list of places to go. Do you speak Spanish? I speak Spanish badly. I I lived in Colombia for uh, oh, cool. two months, and in Costa Rica for three months. I did did various jobs there. So in Colombia, I I lived uh, had one of the one of my undergrad research projects was in Colombia where I studied freshwater sardine ecology and uh, in Costa Rica I did uh, behavior observations of sloths as oh. one of the summer jobs as well so I picked up Spanish uh, while living there but it's kind of you learn it and forget it if you don't use it but yeah. I can get by in Spanish yeah, like, lucky you. I uh, it's it's kind of on my on my to do list. There's a, there's you know some of the cooler uh, uh, there's some cool cactus literature that I'd like to be able to read, but I I rely on translations. That's doesn't yeah. feel quite as cool as getting right into the the real thing. Yeah, absolutely, I agree with you, particularly about San Pedro's and various yeah, synopsis exactly, species. Like exactly. all all of the interesting literature is in Spanish because there is so little written in terms of good quality information about columnar cacti and their traditional use in English. Yeah, yeah, it frustrates me. It frustrates me. But, you know, it's exciting. It's exciting to know that it's, uh, you know, it's there, something that I haven't read yet that I could still go and read. Yeah. Uh, I'm still kind of like uh, caught up in imagining uh, your cactus in the wild journeys. Is there, when you think, was there like one peyote that you saw, if I like, that was like you're your most excited about or most impressed by? Is there, is there one oh, that comes to mind? Definitely, definitely. So one of the uh, ranchers that did not allow me to do research on, uh, on his land, but was glad, uh, happy to show what, what uh, plants he has. And uh, he was incredibly protective about uh, his peyote and said that, he is like it's this land has been in his family for generations and he is really like wants to protect it as as much as possible um and yeah he showed me amazing populations of peyotes was one of those planches peyote planches which is like lots of peyotes growing next to each other almost like they cover the land like a carpet wow. and i've seen i've seen pictures of this uh, from Texas and from Mexico from like decades ago before Piota crisis hit and that's how Piota used to grow it uh, there are accounts that like you couldn't walk on the land without stepping on those planches so that was like one piece of land where I've seen that and it was so beautiful and just made me think like wow imagine like 50 years ago there was so much more land like that and I wish I could see it again, maybe in 50 years time that again, it, it grows in those carpets. It's like a giant magic mattress as well. It's like a little bit squishy too. Like I shouldn't and I won't, but gosh, I could have a beautiful night's sleep on this, couldn't I? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was so beautiful to see like this Piotr carpet. Have you, have you seen uh, much San Pedro in the wild? I haven't. I haven't traveled in Peru or Bolivia. I haven't traveled in South America as much as I wish. So I've only been to Brazil and Colombia. So again, it's some, like particularly Peru and Bolivia. I really want to travel around, but no, I haven't. I haven't seen San Pedro grow in 
in the wild in its native native habitat. I've seen San Pedro's and Bolivian torches growing in the wild in, I don't know, gardens of people who live in, I don't know, California, but not really in its native habitat. And um, I feel like I've neglected um, other cactus that aren't peyote in San Pedro. Is there, are there any that, that excite you? Or maybe false peyotes or anything else that, that, that you've kind of been led to by these other cactus? Uh, well, uh, mescaline has been found in quite a few cacti. Um, although in, in, in other cacti beyond the Echinopsis or Trichocereus uh, and Lofopora williamsi, it's found in small amounts. But yeah, there are quite a few other cacti where it's it's been found and there are also reports from other cacti that were used by indigenous people of mexico like for example by Terahumara, they use ariocarpos and there is also reports of purifanta macromeris or doniana and there's that, uh, that um, has pelicifora acelliformis no that's that purifanta macromeris oh that's the same thing oh is it Oh, oh no, so sorry. I thought that's what you were saying. No, no. Uh, I need to, I need to, I'll do it another time. But yes, tell, tell me more. Tell me more. Yeah, it, it has a, a alkaloid called macromarine and it's apparently is psychoactive, but I don't know many people who've tried it and uh, who've done biases of it. I've seen it growing in the wild. I've picked the berries from it and eaten them, but no, that I had no effect. Oh, cool. But I, I like that. Tried the cactus. But and, yeah, and I, I don't know much about its psychoactivity, but there are rumors that it is somewhat psychoactive. Sometimes rumors are the most exciting. It's a, a bit of yeah. mystery, right? Mm -hmm. and, but and, yeah, I couldn't bring myself to cut it. Like generally, when I see this cacti in the wild, not just peyote, which I know is, uh, uh, is, uh, well, officially it's classified as vulnerable, but in Texas it's definitely endangered. I would not be able to like cut it and harvest from the wild after having spent so much time in the field, in the thorn scrub, sweating and bleeding over it, counting cacti in habitat, looking at population densities. I, I would never be able to even like cut it from the wild. Yeah, I think even when there, like, I, it's, it's kind of a process of eventually I got to the point where I had so much cactus that like, you know, you actually have to start cutting stuff. But even like when you grow your own, it becomes hard to cut it. Like when you like stare really intently at a plant and get really attached to it, um, it's just, you know, you don't want to, you, you, we're worried. You're worried about all this, all this big risk that we're talking about. I um, uh, what what's in your garden? What do you have cactus in your garden? I'm sure I've seen one in a Zoom call with you. Yeah, I, well, I I live in London in an apartment, so I don't even have a garden. Uh, so I have a few cacti on my windowsill. Uh, here I'm not calling from my my home. I'm from my uh, partner's home. He also has some cacti growing in his garden in his greenhouse. Uh, I guess I can. Show oh yeah, please, please. Un un unplug my computer. Go on a tour. I love that. I love that the it's, the cactus is colonizing your relationships garden. as well. Yes, of course. I don't know where. Oh, we're in the wild. We are in the wild. Yes, yeah. Here are some cacti growing oh, in the nice. house. Yeah, you, we yeah, have to have a greenhouse there, right? It, it gets uh, yeah. gets quite cold. Mm -hmm. I see people doing things like um, putting putting candles in in there and stuff to to keep keep it warmer and all sorts of kind of crazy difficulties. It looks kind of tough growing cactus in Europe, to be honest. Yeah, and we had recently frost, so uh, the Bolivian torch was not. Uh, very good at surviving the prolonged frost. So we had to do some surgery on the cacti to make sure it was okay afterwards. Um, 
one thing like the the frost caused some tissue damage on on the top of the house. yeah and it go does it go like black and then it, it rots? goes black yeah. and starts rotting yeah i think it's like the the water freezes and then the cells burst when it's unfreezes but but that it, it does happen in in the wild sometimes right like they get snowed on on in the, in the andes it's not like a completely weird yeah, thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's no, and that even happens with the peyote in Texas. Like in Texas, sometimes, like a few days in a year, they get snow and frost. And generally, the cacti are quite robust to damage and they, they can survive it. Yeah, that's pretty tough. Mm -hmm. Um, We were talking before about nausea and mescaline and how that was kind of reducing some of maybe the clinical viability uh and it's also just a big discussion around people that eat, have mescaline and eat cactus in general i i feel like there seems to be people reporting more nausea with cactus than with mescaline do you think that's the case just just by your impression uh I don't know. It's it's uh, uh, hard to say. Again, I haven't seen any like studies on that. It's all anecdotal reports, so I cannot say if it's like more nausea. I know lots of people who've taken mescaline by itself and report nausea, like even even with pure mescaline. Mm. Yeah, yeah. So I, uh... I don't know. I don't know if it's. It's if it's dose dependent, if it's dependent on particular method of preparation of cacti, if it's particular dependent on presence of other alkaloids in the cacti. Like I know that there were studies in animals that some of the cactus alkaloids that cause nausea and vomiting by themselves. So that could add, add on to um, making cacti more nausea inducing than mescaline so there can be there can be like a scientific explanation for why and also the taste of the cactus is very bitter so just the, like even eating something very bitter and unpleasant can cause nausea yeah i i spoke to keeper about this and he told me something that really made me just think that i if he's right then i absolutely know nothing and i'm just confused but he reckoned people there was more nausea and vomiting with people that were just consuming the outer green layer but when people had the whole plant there was less nausea and vomiting um which is just it feels additionally confusing because i was always at the logic of like if i eat less of the cactus there's less there's less stuff to throw up yeah yeah i don't know i know that um in the andes uh, generally the whole cactus is, is prepared not just the green part but Again, in the, in more Western, uh, it's generally recommended to adjust it the green parts of the skin, kind of peel peel it off and and it the greener green photosynthesizing parts and leave the core of the cactus out. I I don't know whether that reduces nausea. I know that mescaline is mostly concentrated in the outer green parts of San Pedro. Um, so I don't know. Yeah, yeah, I'm very, I'm very interested in finding out. Um, I recall, it was I've forgotten their names, but it was a duo that did a talk at the most recent ESPD. And the, the fellow's name was Maestro something, but he was, I think, a First Nations guy with some tradition of consuming this cactus. And it was, yeah, it was very important for him was something about like consuming the the heart of the plant or something but it was it was very much in favor of this whole plant approach but I, i'm also just personally curious in like what are efficient field techniques because it's not an efficient field technique to just chow down on a whole bit of cactus nor is it an efficient field technique to sit there and boil a brew for 12 hours um but i think the stripping the outside layer and dehydrating it uh or, or to, to some degree that's something you can achieve in a pretty pretty small time frame um and i you know i kind of romanticize the idea of being able to do things in situ i guess um so yeah that's a, i'm just i'm curious about that technique and i was 
um yeah it seems like it's a bit of a popular thing here in australia uh a bit of a trend bit of a trend yeah uh, again i i haven't uh done much san pedro in the field like most of san pedro i come across here in the uk is either you get like you know somebody shares a plant with you and you get like the whole 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 plant uh or you get it as a dry powder either whole dry plants or you get this like when people boil boil it for a few hours and they boil it to some extent that it just becomes this like dry powder concentrate so you can encounter san pedro in this form you can encounter is like cactus chips like just dried strips of cactus or or you can encounter it as a fresh cactus again this is more purely of like anecdotal effects like how how do you no no that's too good it's the what, only data we've got it's the only data we've got i, I don't know what's the optimal way of of cooking it and preparing it well, I, I haven't like completely gone through the data, but I got that um, global drug survey on mescaline cacti. And I, I think I say tentatively, it seemed like nausea and vomiting was most highly represented with people that did a stovetop extraction um, more than any other of the other kind of preparation methods. So, well, it could, so could be stovetop could be something. extraction is boiling it for many hours. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so I thought I thought that was interesting, but on this kind, I haven't seen much taking the conservation slant for San Pedro. I, I, I that same ESPD talk they mentioned uh, about this kind of this issue where if there was a, a plant that was like famous or had a popular clone or people like I know that one's good, then word could get around and like a particular plant could get taken out. So they were kind of trying to discard they i think they were they weren't giving data on what the plants they were testing was i think because that was their their concern but have you heard much around this kind of san pedro conservation stuff uh not really because what i heard of the reports of this cactus growing uh is that it's ubiquitous it just like it's really 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 common uh people use it as hedges uh and it's like it grows everywhere. So it might be that there are certain uh, localities which are known to have high mescaline content and they are more harvested. But in general, like uh, across all uh, uh, mescaline containing hinopsis species, it's not really of conservation concern. They also grow really fast. They propagate very easily. A lot of people have them in cultivation all across the world so it's not environmental concern that i that i heard of good 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 um i think it's also like it's like the the, the issue of people just stealing plants sometimes is misconstrued as conservation right it's not about uh, like and when people are looking at like species levels, population versus like a, a, a cultivar population, it's like, I think it gets a bit messy how people use some of the terminology. Um, but yeah, I think there's, there's like this additional subsection of just like, I guess, plant harvest ethics or, or something like that, that is, is kind of a broader topic. Um, on this, uh, more harm reduction angle when we're talking about nausea uh, and things like that if you know i'm kind of i, I offer like I, I know you do too you you do some work with psycare is is that is that right um yes so you, yes so, psycare so you, is a like a, a harm reduction organization that provides uh, uh service uh, like welfare services at festivals so we look after people who've had maybe difficult experiences with psychedelics or sometimes ketamine, sometimes MDMA or for any other reason. And so, yeah, we, we help people uh, in that during the festival. So it's basically like a British version of Zendo or uh, Cosmic Air uh, from, from Boom Festival in Portugal. And that's that's where it started from uh, the founder of Psycare UK, Karin. Uh, did the uh, work with Cosmic Care at the Boom, and then she decided to set up a similar organization in the UK. I don't know how many years back now, maybe 
October 15, like many, many years ago. And uh, since then it's been growing and doing a lot of good work at festivals. Yeah, we have um, some similar organizations here in Australia. We've got uh, DanceWise and Consciousness are the ones I can think of off the top of my head. Um, but I'm I'm like imagining like so so I'm wanting you to imagine right you're you're at a festival you're in psyche mode you're at the tent someone's walking up to you and they want to ask you about mescaline cactus what's the harm reduction advice that you most or what what do you want to go over and make sure they know? Uh, well, uh, I would uh, make sure that uh, they do no harm. That's that's the main main. Uh, reason and like for example if they thinking of trying peyote to make sure that they know where peyote is coming from that it's say it was grown in the greenhouse locally rather than smuggled out of texas or mexico but that's more harm reduction for the for the plant itself rather than for the person and as for the person i would advise them well first of all like with all the other psychedelics to be mindful of set and setting to make sure that they are taking it in the environment they're comfortable and then also do their research to find out um so if it's say san pedro cactus or any other columnar cactus to to try to identify the potency of it because it varies greatly there are some cultivars that are have a lot more mescaline than others there are some cultivars that have no almost no mescaline at all to make sure that they they know more or less the dose they're taking and uh, don't take too much or too little uh, so if possible yeah to identify the species of the cactus to find out what cultivar it is how potent it is and then the research methods of preparation and find out what would be the best way, as you said, to reduce nausea, for example, what would be better methods of preparation. And are there any, um, <clears throat> are there any combinations that you're, you know, you feel like you, you want to make sure that people are extra cautious with? Mm -hmm. Well, as uh, generally with the, uh, various drugs like i would recommend it particularly if it's the first time to do one one psychoactive substance at a time and not mix it sensible but advice again like if you think of the uh, people at festivals who often end up in psych care like it's usually they've taken a mixture of everything over the course of several days often without sleeping without uh, sleeping much or resting with a lot of alcohol on top of that. So, uh, yeah, in terms of harm reduction advice, like you can advise, but then what people do with it is a different thing. Yeah, yeah, that, that's that's certainly the case. Yeah, I, I somebody guess... comes with like combination of I don't know, ketamine and cocaine, alcohol, couple of like on a calm down after mdma <laughs> i haven't slept for three days and then they take like some psychedelic on top and that's when they have difficult experiences like and that's yeah yeah i uh i, I think there is a lot of that and maybe festival environments uh can kind of uh even encourage that even more it's like people see it as a bit of a break from the everyday and what do you do when it's not everyday whatever you want uh, and that mm -hmm. can be uh an interesting time but yeah. I, I i guess uh i i'm trying i'm trying to get it like are you are you worried about if someone comes to you and they're like i've had mescaline i'm worried uh are you are you worried about anything are you monitoring anything like i i know there's like some kind of some cardiovascular stuff maybe at high doses um but or are you mostly just concerned about the kind of like their psychological well-being i think with with the mescaline uh mescaline has um like binds to a variety of receptors so it's not very selective for serotonin so yeah, it is possible that with higher doses of mescaline, there can be other other effects, uh, maybe even like cardiovascular things. But generally speaking, like mescaline is similar to other classic psychedelics in terms of like 
physical effect. It's, it is, it is, it has more body load. It has more problems with, uh, like, uh, poss possibility of vomiting, nausea, and diarrhea. But generally speaking, it's not that much different from other classic psychedelics. Uh, so yeah, I would be more worried about the psychological effects more so than physiological effects. Yeah, I think it's 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 not it's not as dangerous as ibogaine, for example. If somebody came and said like I've taken a boga plant, then straight away you think, okay, monitor for cardiovascular things. But with mescaline, it's not like the first thing that comes to mind. Yeah, I think um, even just like uh, you know that that was more or less my understanding. But I feel like vocalizing and having the knowledge is like uh, so comforting like you want yeah. someone to tell you when you're having a difficult masculine experience i want you to tell me exactly what you just told me so i'm like it's okay it's all in my head i'm just it's, feeling a bit sick yes and like of course there are dangers like if somebody vomits and passes out uh, like th this can be dangerous so of course you like look monitor people and make sure they are okay uh, but yeah it's physiologically not as dangerous let's say Iboga. Yeah, I think I, I read that there is there no recorded deaths from mescaline except this one sketchy as instance of the CIA giving someone like like 30 grams or just something just unbelievable. Yeah, I think I think so. I, I don't quite remember all the literature now, but yeah, mescaline is generally considered as safe as most other classic psychedelics. Oh, I guess you didn't ask me about the uh, peyotin and uh, other peyote alkaloids. Oh, yeah. Have you have you have you tried have you tried um peyotin isolate? No, no, because like where would I get it? It's hard enough to get mescaline. Sometimes, sometimes, sometimes things happen, you know. Uh -huh. No, no, I haven't tried it, but uh, in September uh, I listened into a very interesting conference in the Netherlands, uh, ICPR, and there was a guy called Christian Pauli who talked about uh, cactus alkaloids, uh, specifically other alkaloids in uh, various Lophophora species. And yeah, he talked about, you know, hordenine and uh, anhalonidine, anhalamine, and like all, all those, like there are more than 40 to 70 different alkaloids found in uh, various uh, peyotes uh, in Lafafora Williamsi, Lafafora uh, Fritchi, Diffusa, and others. And uh, amongst others, he was talking about uh, peyotin. And this was one of the original alkaloids identified by Hafter at the end of 19th century. And Hafter did extensive research with peyotin by administering to various animals like rabbits, I think, and uh, rodents and also to himself and then subsequently it's been trialed in many humans so in humans peyotin has uh, effects on drowsiness so and sleepiness and actually like there was some pharmaceutical company that was planning to market it as a sleeping pill and then uh, i think benzodiazepines came out which were popular much better as <laughs> they a were popular <laughs> and they become a lot more popular but yeah peyotin was in induces drowsiness and sleepiness in some people not in everyone but in some people uh and i also heard some anecdotal evidence that it induces kind of delirium like sleep in higher doses but again that's i just came across of like somebody telling me about it from their own personal experience well, it's definitely on my list. I, I I wish to try that one. But yeah, there is an interesting paper by Camila Chan about uh, alkaloids, and and they do reviews of all the studies that were done with various alkaloids. Mm, cool. Hey, what what's the paper called? Do you know? Uh, alkaloids from Lafofora diffusa and other false peyotes. Oh, perfect. Thank you. Thank I you very much. I can send you the, the PDF. Please do. Please do. Do you have um anything exciting you're working on at the moment? Uh, I'm doing qualitative. So for my 
main work I do qualitative uh, analysis, the qualitative interviews of people's subjective experiences on Python Year DMT cool. in a couple of clinical trials. So this is what I'm working on now. And st I started uh, doing an analyzing transcripts of the of the interviews. And yeah, so that's that's the exciting thing I'm working on right now. Yeah, I did. Um, I had a, a phase of doing lots of triaging of Arrowwood experience reports. It's a, it's a particular pleasure to reading that stuff, you know? Just... Yeah, it is. And it's amazing, like, how diverse people's experiences are. And, yeah, I'm just, like, constantly amazed at, uh, like, do, doing those interviews. It's, like, amazing window in somebody's, somebody's mind. And yeah, the fact yeah. that people are so happy to share those experiences and it's also like so important to collect those experiences to understand what it is about psychedelic experience itself that could be therapeutic mm. i love that you're doing qualitative data as well like you're such a, a mixed match of scientific stuff it's it's really cool i mean the, the older i get the more i go into the qualitative stuff certainly in terms of like neuroscience psychiatry psychology aspect of my career in terms of ecology and conservation i'm still very much the quantitative scientist i like yeah. to go out in the field and count and measure and stuff but yeah working with humans i believe that with psychedelics in particular i believe in qualitative the importance of qualitative Research. yeah i like that that's a that's a nice simple binary but i i i i feel i feel that i feel that i, I, I mean i don't know maybe in, in a few years i'll communicate with plant intelligence and the qualitative studies on yeah yeah exactly maybe we'll be looking back on this being like oh anya you'd said that plants didn't have feelings i do i do believe that they have feelings and sentience because in all this like woodwide web research how the trees you know communicate with each other via mycelial networks and warn each other about particular pathogens and parasites so they do communicate and they do sense their environment and react to it it just happens in a very different way than we conceptualize it like without brain and central nervous system and like being able to react to something very like you know mammals can or other animals but yeah. they definitely have sentience and they do communicate and they have memories and yeah that's my feeling too form I, of I, intelligence I, I i feel like um i don't know it's it's funny when you think around how language works around plants too like when people like what well, one thing for me that i've recently noticed that i do and i'm trying not to do it because i don't like it is saying my plants like like this ownership and like that's a that's a habit i'm trying to trying to destroy but i yeah it feels weird it feels weird for people to be yeah owning owning plants right mm -hmm. yeah i feel strange about that hey unrelated but, but I, I guess i guess you can probably can say like my cat or my yeah. dog yeah, in the yeah. same way like you know you can't own a cat like in a sense a cat owns you yeah yeah that's <laughs> true that's true but maybe uh, it's the same as plus. Well, I've, I think I've kind of taken you through my long list of things that I'm keen to discuss, but maybe is there anything that you'd like to reiterate or something you got coming up or something you want to plug? I think the most important thing to reiterate is to be mindful of where cacti are coming from and be very careful, particularly with peyote, because this is the cactus that is... Uh, uh, has most conservation concerns uh, about it and there are lots of indigenous people and cultural traditions that depend on it so yeah i would encourage people to make sure if they do take peyote like that it's coming from cultivated sources and not from the wild that's the most important thing and uh, i guess in terms of uh, other things I would encourage people to look at the work of Cactus Conservation Institute, which is a US-based nonprofit, which I'm also involved in, and uh, they helped a lot with my research. 
uh, led by Martin Terry and uh, Kiefer Trout, like they do good work in biota conservation and raising the awareness and information and uh, in Texas. So yeah, check out Cactus Conservation Institute. Thanks so much for tuning in, everyone. And thanks again to Anya for being part of it. I hope you all found our conversation as enjoyable as I did. Uh, check out the podcast description for links to all the papers and other resources we discussed. Make sure to keep your eyes peeled for some upcoming cactus stuff from me too. Uh, we talked about the Global Drug Survey Mescaline Cacti module, and based on this data, I wrote a paper on conservation, which is currently under review at the Journal of Psychedelic Studies. So that should be open access for everyone to read and is hopefully not too far away. As I mentioned earlier, there'll be some podcasts coming out soon, including an interview with the German San Pedro taxonomist, author and breeder, Patrick Knoll. I'm currently working on an online course, a beginner's introduction to mescaline cacti with Carpi, and I'm also about to release a free PDF version of my book, The San Pedro Appreciation Guide, a highly visual guide that talks about the various qualities people find desirable in this group of special Trichoceries hybrids. But if you want a hard copy of the book, or if you'd just like to support this podcast and my general life scheme to go full cactus, you can buy a hard copy from the shop on themescalinegarden.com, and there are some other cool cactus-related products you might like there too. A donation is another way you can really help support me in putting more into cactus projects, so if you'd like to do that, please go to buymeacoffee.com forward slash mescalinegarden. Thanks everyone.